What does filmed for IMAX mean? It isn't just a movie that'll look great on IMAX's screens. It means that hiding from a sandstorm feels like fear in every flicker. And every triumph is felt in every sound wave. And the things we've only imagined, you can truly experience those too. That's what filmed for IMAX means. Get tickets to experience Dune Part 2 now and IMAX's exclusive expanded aspect ratio. Tonight, only on Disney+. Plus. My name is Taylor. Welcome to the Eras Tour. Experience Taylor Swift's record-breaking Eras Tour. Swift, the Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with four additional acoustic songs. Streaming tonight, only on Disney+. Plus. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. First time I fell in love. Woke up next to the girl and escaped fast and far. Now, we don't need to relate to a film to admire it, right, Adam? Speak for yourself, Josh. That's Adam Driver in the eccentric new movie musical Annette from eccentric French film director Leos Carrex. You're going with eccentric, huh? I don't, I don't know if that's enough to prepare people for Annette. This week, Michael Phillips will join me for a review of Annette, while Adam and I will continue the World of Wong Kar Wai Marathon with 1997's Happy Together. That and more. Fast and far, Josh. Fast and far. Ahead on Film Spotting. Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Welcome to Film Spotting. Last week, Josh, our World of Wong Kar Wai marathon got us caught up with Fallen Angels, the director's 1995 follow-up to Chungking Express. You were a little higher on the movie than I was, but we both agreed that it suffered from a serious lack of Tony Leon. Well, I mean, when you put it that way, most movies suffer from a lack of Tony Leon. Indeed, they do. That does get remedied this week in the Tony Leung starring Happy Together from 1997. His co-star, Leslie Chung, also a familiar face from the marathon. He was the brutish star of Wong's Days of Being Wild. That marathon review later in the show. Plus, inexplicably, Josh caught up with the new Aretha Franklin biopic, Respect, and you've got thoughts. Yeah, they let me in. First, though, I'll be joined by Michael Phillips, who, I've been told, plans to do all of his own singing for our review of Annette. One, two, three, four. So many. This is my baby. 
Like Annette, the puppet child performer with the angelic voice, the Chicago Tribune's Michael Phillips is here to step into the spotlight that Adam Kempinar has vacated. Welcome, Michael. Always a delight to have you on the show. I'm sorry. Are you calling my prose wooden? Are you Are you saying I'm <laughs> never? I'm a wooden stylist. Is I would never say that, Michael. Come on. Uh, well, anyway, despite that, it's good to be back here, Josh. <laughs> good, good. You know, I got to say, Michael, I don't know where to start with Annette. So maybe let me get some of the particulars out of the way before we address some of the more eyebrow-raising elements, shall we say. Annette is directed by Leos Carax, whose most recent film was 2012's Wild, Bewildering, Holy Motors. This time, Carax delivers a full-fledged movie musical. The songs themselves are written by brothers Ron and Russell Mayle, who have been performing for years under the band name Sparks. Edgar Wright put out a documentary on the band this year, The Sparks Brothers, which Adam has given the seal of approval. The star of Annette, who we know can sing from his turn in a marriage story, is Adam Driver, here playing Henry McHenry, a bad boy avant-garde stand-up comic in contemporary Los Angeles, who conducts his assaultive, interactive performances in a bathrobe. At the beginning of the film, Henry is in a torrid affair with Anne, played by Marion Cotillard, an opera singer also performing nightly in L.A. And by torrid, I mean they share a duet, we love each other so much, while Henry is... Um, in a very giving position, let's just say. This all leads to the birth of a child, the Annette of the title, who, yes, is depicted by a wooden Pinocchio-style puppet. There's more, but, you know, spoilers. Annette demands a visceral reaction, Michael, which is what it received at the Cannes Film Festival earlier this summer. In addition to a Best Director win for Carax and a Best Composer win for The Males, the movie screening was reportedly a mixture of standing ovations and boos. Now you, Michael, you've been to Cannes, unlike me, so you have a better sense of what that atmosphere is like. You didn't attend this year, but I'm going to ask you to put yourself in that theater. Imagine you were there. The lights come up at the end of a net. Would you have given it a standing ovation? Would you have booed or just sat there dumbfounded? <laughs> Those are your choices. Uh, I try to do all three in different rotations, depending, you know. Uh, uh, you that's know, I, how I, these things last 20 minutes. Now I get it. That's right. That's right. I have to say, seeing this film uh, in the in a press screening uh, at the Gene Siskel Film Center the other day, which had, you know, several dozen people in that theater, and that's the first time most of us, a lot of us, although I had seen, a, I've seen a lot of movies in theaters during this damn pandemic in varying degrees of comfort or discomfort or safety or whatever. But that really felt a little like, okay, we're, there was a, there was a serious level of excitement just about seeing something, you know, you're going to, whatever you think of it, you're going to wrestle with it at least. Sure. You're going to be confronted by a kind of a, a, a brazen, you know, this is what I got type filmmaker. And uh, it was, it had that kind of buzz. It was great. Uh, yeah, I it, when I I do remember the Holy Motors response back in 2012 at Cannes, and that 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 was less, frankly, I think I'm guessing less divisive uh, at the moment at that premiere moment okay. than Annette. I, I think the the war the the feeling for that central performance in Holy Motors by Denis Levant, who's worked a lot with Carax, um, was just such a stunning. Tour de Force, eleven different characters, and, and you could you could kind of go with that one or not. I did. I liked it a lot, but that performance was just 
stunningly kind of kaleidoscopic. Now, that's very different from what he's up to. We'll talk about this, but that's very different from what he's up to with Adam Driver and Marianne Cotillard and even the puppet, played by several different puppets, actually, uh, in Annette. So it's, it has a, a totally different performance energy and a totally different cinematic energy. And that's that's why it's 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 a great – it's kind of a great thing to look at these two films as bookends because they're, <laughs> they're – there's completely mismatched bookends in a way, but in a, in kind of a bracing way. So anyway, I, uh, uh, respectful, um, how, how about, I would say I would, I would have exhibited respectful delirium. You know, that's my, okay. that's, that's my, that's my stock and trade anyway. Stoic, <laughs> like stoic delirium. You don't, you don't want to give too much away. All right. Fair <laughs> enough. I, I would, I'm going to put myself in the dumbfounded bunch and appreciatively so though, not derisively so, not dismissively so. And I'm afraid, you know, even in some of the description during that setup, I may sound like I'm I'm throwing this out of hand, but it this is strange stuff that Carax is throwing at us. And and so there's no way around that. For me, the wrestling comes with well, does all the strangeness add up to something that's going to stick with me, that's going to kind of haunt me? Uh, I don't know if I can say that's the case with Annette. I think this touches on some interesting things about, you know, the comparisons of high art and low. We have this stand-up comic and this opera singer. They're kind of, you know, at both ends of the artistic spectrum in some ways. I think that's one thing the film is interested in. The very nature of celebrity, there's a section of how their relationship is a section of the film that pops up, the tabloids covering this relationship. Uh, And I think maybe the thing that Annette is most interested in, perhaps, is the very idea of performance. And at least for me, if I see it through that lens, then some of these really outrageous choices have... Us, uh, have a meaning behind them or have an intention behind them, I should say. So it's not just cracks and the males throwing wild ideas up on the screen for the thrill of it, though there are some thrilling sequences here too, but they're at least thinking about something or provoking something in me to think about. And that is this idea of performance. Uh, when is a performance higher? When is it low art? Why does someone give a certain type of a performance compared to a different one? And even this idea of this puppet child ties into that, right? Is that here is, you know, they're actually saying to be a performer is in a sense to be a puppet, whether you literally are or you're something like Henry McHenry, whose career kind of goes off course once he gets involved uh, with Anne. So I think these are kind of the, some of the things at play um, that give me enough of a hook to, you know, appreciate what the movie is going on about. But again, I don't know if it all clicked for me in a way that this is going to be, say, one of my favorite films of the year, as it clearly is going to be for other critics. Some people, and and I'm I'm I think I probably like to responded to it a little a little more strongly what I'm hearing uh, the, uh, than you did. But I wish I had the experience that others like Scott Tobias, friend of the show. Uh, adores it and uh, you know he, he's written very persuasively about why he thinks it's a true work of art um I, it's the, i will say this for people who are on the fence about like, is this is this for me should i give it a shot i would say it doesn't have to be approached like okay def- got my guard up defenses it's going to be weird i'm ready it's actually a, i will i will make an argument that it's a pretty straightforward narrative if you want to look at it 
on, on, in such a way that will actually kind of, you know, kind of bring down the intimidation factor. You have this weird marriage and attraction of these sort of essentially narcissistic superstars in their, in their own different realms, right? I mean, as you say, uh, drivers, uh, Henry McHenry is this sort of like I, an insult performance artist, <laughs> you know, like an insult comic. Um, yep. And he's doing things like, you know, the, you get a, you get a fair chunk of his uh, stage show um, early on in, in the net where, you know, he sta- he's doing things like staging his own assassination. It's freaking the audience out. But, there, you know, there's a lot of nervous, you know, he, he's built an entire superstar comedian's career. Uh, on nervous laughter, and that's you know yes. you can you know it doesn't really relate to the world we live in now or L.A. now or else no I mean because because Caracas we should we should point out is a guy who's got one foot in fantasy land and the other in the entire history of movies and show business I think um, it's not this is no nobody's idea of a gritty you know documentary <laughs> style anything you know sure. Um, uh, so you have that, you have that, you have the Cotillard's uh, character who's kind of a, uh, you know, again, again, this is this is sort of a reach, but he's, you know, she's a superstar uh, opera um, figure sort of on the Beverly Sills, but for the 21st century, you know, sort of level. And, you know, it's how they get together. The songs are very straightforward. Uh, you know, they have the, 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 it's a well-charted, as you say, sort of celebrity um, romance. And then when... The baby comes. Uh, we have, you know, the story is entirely, I think, told through and really most comfortable with the kind of um, freaked out male perspective. You know, the the yeah. the, the nerve wracked, uh, completely self loathing and self doubting maybe father figure. That and that's and that is the perspective of this film. And I think. You know, ordinarily with a, with a lesser filmmaker, that would be enough for me to kind of say, "All right, you know, prove it, prove it that we got something to say from this perspective." Mm. But but from there, I think the film does its straightforward start, and then from there, the film gets you know really comes alive more and more and more, just as as pure cinema. It's it's as I think that I think the dis, the discombobulating factor that uh, I'll just mention and then kick it back to you is. You know, we're not we're dealing in a realm that is that is in this really rich meeting ground between film and theater, and these two characters are stage creatures and living sort of surrounded by artificial scenery, and that's kind of the aesthetic we get in the film and that itself in a key scene, which is a, a you know the couple at a very crucial moment of their marriage uh, on a on a on a pleasure craft in uh, a very stormy sea, but it is the most fakey theatrical rear projection stormy seas you've ever seen. But he's not winking at you with this kind of artifice. He's trying to get you to take it seriously enough, at least to take the character's predicament and then eventually the violent melodrama of this story seriously enough to sustain more than two hours. Did that, well, did, did it go, did you follow it? Would you, did you get through that storm into and say, you know, okay, I'm still in it. I'm still in it. Now I'm, I'm kind of riveted in, in a way. It was, that, yeah, I think I was, I think I was probably less riveted as it went on, not because of the filmmaking, but because as you said, it burrows more deeply into Henry McHenry's psyche 
and um, you know his career, and again, what performance means to him, and is it kind of narrowed and Cotillard falls to the wayside a bit? I-, I thought that it became less interesting to me, but that's just in terms of the narrative. Um, visually, you know, that sequence on the boat is stunning, and Karak sets it up, you know, by having little flickers of fantasy invading the film, such as the instance where Anne is on stage in a forest setting and she steps to the rear and suddenly she's in an actual forest and the that's a great shot you know, it's i still that on the review yeah no yeah, I mean, it's I, just on the first gorgeous. pass that, yeah it's beautiful and, Beautiful. you know, that's the sort of melding, as you're talking about, of fantasy and reality um, on a filmmaking level that I did appreciate. Uh, I do – I want to return to this idea of performance, particularly as it applies to Adam Driver's performance, because this is – I mean – this is out there. This is someone reaching for something completely different, whether they want to change their perception among filmgoers or other filmmakers. I mean, let's face it, this isn't playing in a ton of theaters. Uh, more than half of the people who saw him in the Star Wars films are never going to see Annette. Yet, there is this chance here where Driver says, you know, I, I'm not just going to do something small scale and intimate um, like a marriage story opposite Star Wars. I'm going all in. He's on the stage, as as you said, as part of Henry McHenry's act, spinning around, dancing, you know, ripping the robe off, burying his soul. It's kind, His whole thing is kind of anti-performance is the bit behind Henry McHenry's whole act is that he's breaking apart the idea that he should perform for this crowd. And I feel like Driver, you have to wonder if he's doing something differently here by even taking this role and then performing it with such gusto because he's not thinking about how some of these scenes might play in terms of being laughable, certainly taken out of the story and the narrative proper and just seen, say, in a trailer or something like that. Um, So I am very curious to hear what you made of Driver's performance, especially kind of in light of the other things we've seen him do recently. Yeah, it's really good. I mean, at this point, I'm just willing to say I'll, I'll, I never miss an Adam Driver musical. I mean, as you, as you mentioned, you know, he provided a, a, a really credible and unexpected rendition of Sondheim's Being Alive at the end of Marriage Story. He also, you know, he's sung in uh, – he did the Please Mr. Kennedy number in uh, uh, along with Oscar Isaac and uh, Justin yeah. Timberlake and uh, Inside Lewin Davis. And, you know, he's, he's, got, he's got a completely solid – Voice and he's got you know he's he's an actor that I I honestly don't know if uh, if I didn't seriously underrate him uh, up until about ten movies ago. I mean I, I think I think he's a guy who's uh, you know he's done a fair amount of stage work by this time. He did a revival on Broadway of Lanford Wilson's Burn This. He's you know he's 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 got the stuff to to go big and to take it small. And I think that's what. That's what this kind of movie, and I think this is what Karak's responded to. Now, is the movie really a performance vehicle? I suppose it is, and it's certainly more for Driver than than the somewhat marginalized Cotillard. But this is this is a movie that's locked inside schmucky male behavior, you know, and and that's unapologetically, and uh, it, it somehow it, it's it finds enough of a of, of a motor to kind of keep you through it. Now, I will say this too it's it's an increasingly grim and kind of dour progression of events as a story and at, at the first time i saw it josh i think i kind of 
had a weird experience where it just it just the, the kind of the utter cruelty of some of the situations and of the of of what Henry's obsessions and self-loathing lead to it just that that's the that was the dominant tone for me the first time um the second time through which was just a few hours ago i think i think maybe because you know it's coming but i i think what carax was going for which is in terms of this bitterly ironic sense of humor which is kind of kind of an activating ingredient i think that's what came through the second time i mean the i love the i love the the opening pre-seed where where you the audience is being told uh uh, breathing will not be tolerated. So take a last deep breath right now, and, and then then we get the opening number, which is kind of wonderful. And, and from for any kind of audience, so may we start. It is yes, which is just great. It's like introducing the company. It's even setting you up for the main themes of the day. It's like we're going to have a little murder. We're going to have you know we're going to have you know love and regret and all of it. Um, and there's a great lyric. Uh, my favorite from from one of the couplets is just that. Well, they're underprepared, but that may be enough. And <laughs> you know maybe that's. <laughs> Maybe that's Carrack's talking to himself and and the and the Sparks duo, just about like, well, is this enough? Are we underpreparing our uh, 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 this for what we want to do as a two-hour uh, excursion into this sort of one male psyche's uh, fever dream, really? But uh, you know, I'd say it is, and it's it, what it what it isn't. It's not uh, an amazing kinetic. Uh, performance at the center, like Carax had with Holy Motors and Denis Levant, which was just like just just dazzling and really a, really an energizer. This is much more of a case, I think, of Driver and Cotillard and a smaller but third largest character, uh, the accompanist played by Simon Helberg. Um, you know, these are characters who are kind of stuck in their uh, in their own hides and their own kind of. The uh, uh, shell of fame and uh, maybe ambition, and you know, it's not about like, are we relatable? Are we sympathetic? Are we anything? It's just simply like, you know, they're kind of like almost a humors, you know, <laughs> that are just kind of like the essence of who they are, either self-loathing or ambition or just you know, uh, fame or you know, it's. I, I would just say it's kind of the, the world's most toxic remake of A Star Is Born, essentially. <laughs> Yeah, I think that I think that's a good reference, and, and maybe uh, whatever happened to Baby Jane, we get we, we kind of wind our way <laughs> towards by the end, but I won't say any more about that. You mentioned Cotillard's voice, which in the the non operatic numbers, at least the Sparks Brothers songs, the original songs, is just lovely, um, and could have continued listening to her. They seem to be a nice match. Uh, I don't know if I can say the same for Driver, and I'm with you that um, in a Marriage Story that was just such a beautiful surprise when he gets up and sings at the end. And yes, Inside Lewin Davis may be one of my favorite scenes from that movie, his singing here. These are songs we mostly get by the males that are, um, you know, it's it's rock opera. I, I hear some Queen style stuff in it. And I also hear Driver kind of straining for some of the bits here. And sometimes that can be fine. I'm not asking for perfection, but right. I think for me, it just, that's not my preferred style of music to start with. And then if you have someone who's maybe not as adept at it, 
this didn't, the music itself was not necessarily a plus for me in Annette. And I think, again, mm-hmm. that's purely a taste thing. But as you said, you know, let let people know this isn't going to confuse you in terms of plot. It's pretty straightforward. Um, if you like rock opera, you're going to be fine with this. But if other styles of music and musicals are more your thing, it might not hit as hard. But you are right, Michael, about that opening number. So may we start? And I like the meta element Two, where we're basically in a recording studio. Carax himself, I believe, is behind the glass, you know, giving the instructions. And both Russell Mail and Ron Mail are in the studio with the musicians. The camera kind of starts on them and they begin singing. And then they stand up, walk out of the studio, a reverse, you know, unbroken take that follows them out onto the street where Driver joins as Driver, Cotillard joins as Cotillard, and they sing to us, sing to the camera. Again, we're back to this idea of, you know, performance, multiple levels of performance going on here as they invite us to watch this film. And this may be a case for me of a musical, sometimes this happens, begins with such a great bang that it never really can reach those heights again. Maybe in the heights actually is an example <laughs> for me. Um, yeah. And I think that was the case here. And, and partly it just has to do with the music. So May We Start is maybe the best song in my mind. Um, and I just enjoyed the performances of that song. But also, as we've been talking about where the plot goes, it definitely gets darker. That wit is still there. For sure. But the story gets darker. We are more stuck in Henry McHenry's experience. And so it did kind of start to drain for me the experience overall. Um, but but what's your take on the actual songs, the the spark songs? Yeah, the song, I mean, I mean, absolutely. I, I think the, the what I think of is I go back to like the Three Penny Opera, you know, the Brecht Wild thing that gave us Smack the Knife and everything where, you know, it starts, you know, it's it's got this Brechtian framework where you're getting kind of like we're going to give you the showbiz at the beginning we'll Mm -hmm. give you a little bit in the middle and then we'll kind of wrap it up with a very similar kind of exit number you know it's like sweeney todd or any number of musicals where we're just going to say we're going to give here's this here's the story we're about to give you it's pretty pretty morbid here we go Um, and then you know that's the way of prepping us i guess uh but at the same time it's not you know, it's it's a I, I like I like some of the I like a lot of the music, uh, but some of it is is got an extremely narrow intention. Where you have you know just two or three minutes of Simon Helberg saying I'm an accompanist, and this is yeah I'm going to tell you, and that's that's literally one of the one of the lyrics, and I'm, that's all I'm doing. I'm stuck in this position. I really want to be a conductor. I'm an accompanist. So they're all, these yeah. people are defined by their job titles, you know, um, or or just sort of like the fact that uh, a single fact like. Uh, you know, uh, uh, Anne and Henry are allegedly in love, and the song is called "You Know We Love Each Other So Much," and that and that's repeated re- and repeated. And, that repeat- yeah. and and it's, it's to the point where you don't really know if he buys it or who believes it or is is what kind of love is it really? It's really just more of a poser, a poser's sort of you know, approach because most of what you're seeing visually during the song is. Um, well, it's either oral sex, you know, or uh, or or it's 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 kind of like a perfume ad because they're both on a motorcycle with just enough of their bare legs showing to kind of make it look like, yeah, I'd buy the perfume, you know. Yes, <laughs> um, and that's and that's, so visually that's the thing. Now, there's there's a sense of humor behind behind all of this. Um, sure, but of course. As this, as the story goes, it does get you know more methodical, more grinding, and more you know more arguably not tragic, but murderous let's say um and will audiences go for that you you gotta you can't generalize about any audience with this thing and as you say who knows who's even going to see it who's going to discover it in this pandemic you know this kind of film i mean uh, carox has not uh, had 
you know, great success in America. People, I know some people who have seen, I've only seen one previous. I'm not a correct, uh, um, you know, acolyte. I, I, I need to see more. I've seen the, the, the lovers on the bridge a long time ago with, uh, Julia Binoche and, uh, Denis Levant. And, you know, I, uh, he, I'm, I'm intrigued by how far he pushes it in a net in terms of really making the audience kind of eat it with the storyline. I mean, that's what mm. took me back to things like Pennies from Heaven, 1981, um, where you really are dealing with like a lot of uh, a harsh, striking contrast between the the glories of escapist show business and and that kind of, you know, romantic song and, you know, you know, rape, murder, uh, you know, all awful, you know, uh, uh, it's, you know, maybe Lars von Trier's Dancer in the Dark would be the only other musical in terms of uh, deliberate, ironic cruelty to what happens in the story. You know, th- that would be a tough triple bill. You know, if you showed, <laughs> if you if you had a show, <laughs> and I, I kind of, you know, I, I, I find a lot to like in all three, but uh, you know you don't recommend these movies lightly. I guess is is the short answer. I mean, if, if uh, the other hilarious double bill, I think Josh should be like showing La La Land, and then and then <laughs> well, hit him with hit him with yes. the net, the other you know the other side of L.A. That, which is like like a Martian from Mars came down to America and went to L.A. and said, you know, I'm just going to kind of imagine what this what life is like on this planet, and that's the movie we get in a net. That's a good way to describe it. I would also recommend a La La Land chaser after seeing Annette. I, I like that idea as well. <laughs> Annette is currently playing in limited release. It comes to Prime Video on the 20th. So there, maybe that's where it will find larger audiences. If you've seen it and agree or disagree, send us your thoughts to feedback at filmspotting.net. Thank you, Michael, for joining me for this review. Where can folks follow your work? Is that Tribune website still huffing and puffing away? <laughs> yes. And I would appreciate a subscription now because uh, it's 99 cents for eight weeks. And if you you sons of guns can't pony up 99 cents to keep my family in food, I mean, for 99 I mean, cents, you can't buy much. I'm just Michael. saying buy your review you know, this, of Annette is worth what, like at least eight ninety nine. So this is a exactly. steal. This is exactly. a steal. No, I, you know, honestly, ChicagoTribune dot com slash movies. You can find the Annette review, uh, you know, somewhere on that site uh, if you have a week or two to look for it. And uh, uh, honestly, I'm glad I had a chance to talk through, you know, the the various multi directional craziness of Annette because that, that was a that, re, that was a review I wrote quickly in a busy week, and I was not. I was not satisfied with the results of kind of like getting at anything particularly interesting, but um, you know, it's, it's, I, I was happy to see it a second time and uh, weird to say about a, such an unhappy movie in many ways, but you know, the, the cinema of it really does make it feel like it's not just a theoretical exercise. It feels like, you know, like it or not, it is a real movie. It is a real movie. All right. Thanks again, Michael. Thank you. Happy together. That's what Adam and I will be when he returns for the latest film in our world of Wong Kar Wai Marathon up next. Plus, more Adam Driver talk when we reveal the results of the film spotting poll, asking for your favorite performance by the actor. Stay with us. All the girls I see look so great to me. What amazes me is what they see in me. All the girls I see in France and Italy or here in Rapungi, what do they see in me? 
Everybody find the songs that move you. Until you do that, you ain't going nowhere. I need a change. I want to sing what I want to sing. I don't know how this happened, Josh, but you actually watched a music biopic before me, and I'm not sure that you had to. You certainly didn't have to for this show. Was there some other obligation I'm not aware of? Um, I mean, I can get into it when it comes to respect. Yeah, I, I can explain myself if you need me to. That was from the trailer for Respect, the Aretha Franklin biopic that comes to theaters this weekend. It stars Jennifer Hudson, Forrest Whitaker, Audra McDonald, Marla Wayans, and Mary J. Blige also in the cast. And Josh, everything about this film seems to suggest a by-the-numbers biopic, which you don't really go for at all. We've got the dreaded birth-to-death format, a film made with the approval of the Franklin estate. Star Jennifer Hudson was, we are told, handpicked to play the role by the Queen of Soul herself before Franklin's 2018 death. And yet, are you actually giving this film, this much beleaguered film, at least what I've seen on Twitter, a recommendation? I mean, those are, none of those are good things, (laughs) usually when it comes to a film. So apparently I have to first... Before I can get to what I liked about Respect, I have to explain why I went, even went to Respect. And actually, it's a pretty easy answer. Aretha Franklin. I mean, if there's going to be a music biopic that piques my interest, it's it's probably her. I'm, I'm guessing maybe it was Blues Brothers the first time um, I had the pleasure of hearing and seeing Aretha Franklin and hear what she was all about. But I was pretty little. At the time, other than that, for I don't know how many years now, Adam, in our married life, for some reason, I've never asked her why, but Sunday mornings, getting ready for church time, Debbie has always put on Aretha Franklin. Now, not not the gospel stuff either. You would think that's what that's what she'd put on, but no, the other stuff. So it's just been baked in, like, to me, that is Sunday morning, you know? Um, you're just a little harried sometimes. Can you get to church? Can you make it with the kids on time? But there was Aretha Franklin in the background, and it was making thing, making everything okay. So this is music that I don't know as a student of it, but I've just kind of lived with it for so long and loved it for so long. And I was curious, yes, what this might be like, even though all those signs suggested it might be disastrous. It's not disastrous. It does suffer from those things. It's very conventional in terms of a biopic, veering towards cliched, absolutely. Um, If I didn't like Aretha Franklin's music, I would probably not be recommending this. What I can say is that um, Jennifer Hudson probably gets as close as you can to that powerhouse voice. Those vocals which... You know, it's it's almost like Aretha Franklin had her voice on a leash and she would just unleash it, see how far she, she could let it go before suddenly yanking it back. And the thrill of her music is listening to how far it's going to go, how far she's going to let that voice just sing. And yeah, of course, you know, Jennifer Hudson doesn't do exactly that in the movie, but she she gives us a good variation on that. The dramatic scenes, the straight dramatic scenes, maybe she's not quite as effective. But I think what you would probably like about this movie, Adam, and we may have talked about this in regards to Love and Mercy, the Brian Wilson Mm -hmm. biopic. Um, Tell me if I'm wrong, but aren't there sequences there of actual song craft, of the putting together, right? Mm -hmm. So you get 
a number of scenes like that here in respect that are far and away the best elements of the movie. It's not only where you get to hear Hudson's voice, but there is a scene early on among her. It's basically dramatizing her one of her first recordings with the legendary session musicians at the Muscle Shoals studio in Alabama, mm-hmm. famous studio. And they kind of, you know, noodle around trying to find their way into this song, the song I Never Loved a Man, The Way I Love You. And there's a moment where Hudson just says, follow me. And she then just leads them into this groove. The The various musicians do follow her and they build this classic song together. And we get to watch that on screen. And that is thrilling. There's another later moment involving Ain't No Way, which was written by Franklin's sister, Carolyn Franklin. And it shows how she and her sisters kind of work to beautifully meld their voices. And so the songcraft scenes here um, are absolutely the highlights and carried this over for me to, to mildly recommend it. This is what I would say. If you're a Franklin fan, you'll probably like it, even if you're suspicious of biopics. If you're not a Franklin fan... Um, or, you know, just mild on her, by all means, go watch Amazing Grace, the documentary that was released, made years ago in 1972, of her live recording of her gospel album, Amazing Grace. But the documentary finally surfaced just a couple years ago, also called Amazing Grace. That is That will make you an Aretha Franklin fan. Um, so that's probably the better place to go. It's the far better film. Gives a more nuanced portrait of Franklin. I feel like I learned probably as much about her in that documentary as I did from Respect. But still, I'm going to give, I'm going to even go past the two and a half out of really? five star rating, Adam. I'm going to give this a three out of five. And and yes, that means the heart. Wow. I thought that maybe we were going to need our own soulful jingle for the patented Josh two and a half star <laughs> recommendation. Maybe oh no, not this time. Go so far as to throw out a potential title for it. I'd call it the cop out. But... <laughs> But no, no, you went for it. You went three star. You clicked the like button on Letterboxd. You got it. I am shocked. Respect is currently playing in wide release. If you see it and agree or disagree with Josh's take, email feedback at filmspotting.net. I feel really connected to this neighborhood. Cabrini Green. It was a project. I just moved in around the corner. The old candy factory. I'm an artist. You look up a candy man. That's from the trailer for Candyman, a sequel of sorts to the 1992 film of the same name. The new Candyman is directed by Nia DaCosta and was produced and co-written by Jordan Peele. His involvement definitely makes this more intriguing than the average patented Josh Larson term here, reheat, as does director DaCosta. The movie comes to theaters on August 27th, and we are planning to have a review of it in a couple of weeks. Next week, though, we'll be gearing up for Candyman. We're going to be off a little summer vacation for the trio here, myself, you, and of course, producer Sam. Also in two weeks, In the Mood for Love. One of the benefits of our World of Wong Kar Wai Marathon is a chance to revisit Wong's 2000 masterpiece. I can't wait, especially because... I also will be sharing it with my daughter, Sophie. Yeah, we've been watching this as a family, too. And, and uh, you know, Debbie and I have seen it, but we've been telling our younger daughter, just just wait till we get to. She's, she's like them all, but just wait until we get to In the Mood for Love. I don't know, Adam. We've done, you know, in other marathons, we've occasionally revisited things. Uh, definitely we have in our oeuvre reviews. 
I don't know if I've ever been as excited for a revisit mm-hmm. <laughs> as I am for In the Mood for Love. I mean, it, maybe it's just because it's been a while, but I'm yeah. really looking forward to this one. I'm with you. Also in two weeks, Massacre Theater, the part of the show where we perform a scene from a movie and you get a chance at winning a film spotting t-shirt. In case you missed it, here's a bit of our last massacre. Tell me your name, woman. And what would you do with my name, Sir Hunter? Call me a fox, for that is all I am to you. A fox. Oh, well, then a fox you shall be until I find your name, my foxy lady. Some early feedback coming in here, Adam, on our performances. This is from Megan Riley in Madison, Wisconsin. Travis, my husband, is yelling a lot right now because he wants you to know it's a good movie. Yeah. How dare you, Josh? You're taking some hits in Justin, the entry so far. Justin from South Pasadena, California. On behalf of all 90s kids, we acknowledge it's not a great movie, just an entertaining one. If I see it on cable, chances are I'm sitting through to the end. Say what you will about the movie itself, but you can't deny that and redacted here, the actor's name, commits to the role of, eh, we'll give you William, in spite of the lackluster script. Now, Adam, I was just looking this up, and I'm going to confirm that I have Mm -hmm. this right. Um, We insulted, or I should say I insulted the 90s kids about this, but this movie came out, another clue, 2001. So, kind. Mm. I mean, you know, same generation, I guess we could say, but it's not a 90s movie. Okay, not technically. If you know what film we massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. You do have a little extra time. Your deadline is Monday, August 23rd. On August 18th, so coming up here pretty soon as we're taping this here, Josh, there will be an advanced screening of the new film Reminiscence, which stars Hugh Jackman, Rebecca Ferguson, and Tandy Newton. Very good cast the movie hits theaters and comes to hbo max on august 20th and that advanced screening will take place here in chicago at the amc river east at 7 p.m if you would like to enter to win those passes see the movie for free before it comes out on august 20th you can do that by going to filmspotting.net click on events or click on the link in the notes for this show This week on our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show, they've got a new pairing going on. It's The Green Knight and John Borman's Excalibur. Kind of one of those right there forum pairings, but I love it. Big fan of Excalibur. Can't wait to hear what they have to say. Next Picture Show hosts are Tasha Robinson, Keith Phipps, Scott Tobias, and Genevieve Kosky. New episodes of The Next Picture Show post every Tuesday wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find more information at nextpictureshow.net. We are approaching, Josh, our next trivia spotting, our 13th. In fact, we're calling it Trivia Spotting 13, going on 30. Access to those trivia spotting events is one of the benefits you get by being a film spotting family member over on Patreon. You support us with $5 a month. You get ad-free episodes. You get, in addition to that access, you get monthly bonus episodes. And we're doing a little bond marathon here getting us ready for no time to die we did talk about from russia with love with guest bond expert chris clement good responses to that conversation so far that was one i hadn't seen josh you hadn't seen it either right no that was new to me okay blind spot for both of us and i've already done my pre-homework because the clear winner is in for our next bonus episode, the August bonus show, we did throw three Roger Moore (laughs) bonds into the mix. We talked about this last week on the show. We went with that latter option. We gave our listeners the chance to pick between Moonraker, Space Bond, 
featuring Roger Moore or the best Bond with Roger Moore, supposedly the spy who loved me. We also had Live and Let Die. No, it was the cheesier 80s option. It was maybe the worst Bond featuring Roger Moore, according to a lot of experts, of You to a Kill. And I think with over 60% of the vote, it was The Spy Who Loved Me. And I actually already caught up with it, Josh. So my homework my homework for August is done. Now we just got to make time to record it. Look at you. You're really going to be on vacation. I can't believe family members took Moonraker away from me. The chance to relive Moonraker. First, they don't let me watch the... Um, ventriloquist dummy anthony hopkins movie what was that i know magic magic. they didn't vote for magic now they're not voting for moonraker what is going on (laughs) letting you down left and right both were blind spots for me i'm sure i did see view to a kill back in the mid 80s or whenever it came out but i was okay with either one and i'm looking forward to your response to the spy who loved me josh if you are a family member and you are interested in participating in our august 20th edition of trivia spotting or if You're thinking about becoming a member, and you've always thought maybe it would be fun. I've heard trivia spotting is a good time. You could still become a family member, and you could play. I think as of this moment, Josh, maybe four or five player tickets left, so they'll definitely be gone by the 20th, but you may still have a shot, and you can get access to that link to buy those tickets by becoming a family member on Patreon, patreon.com slash filmspotting. One other quick plug. One of our regular guest captains, because she's so good on trivia spotting, is Mariah Gates. And on a couple trivia spotting events recently, we have teased this, but I appeared on Mariah's podcast recently, Prague Save America. It's a very eclectic podcast dealing with an eclectic set of music, Bruce Springsteen, Bob Dylan, and Prague Rock. And Mariah called me on because... She knew, or I may have insisted on telling her, that I was a huge Genesis fan, primarily Genesis from those prog rock days. So she had me on, and I think we had basically a film spotting episode length conversation about my love for Genesis. Yeah, I actually I actually haven't listened to it yet. I kind of have this thing where I don't I don't really like listening to myself, Josh, so I'm going to rely on other people to tell me whether or not it was a decent podcast. Mariah was great, of course, but if you are curious to hear that, we will link to that in our show notes as well. Or you can, of course, search Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts for Prague Save America. Somebody hold me too close. Somebody hurt me too deep Somebody sit in my chair And ruin my sleep And make me aware Of being alive Being alive Adam Driver there, surely from his Tony-winning performance as Robert in Sondheim's Company, yes? Uh, sure, yeah. I think that's where that's from. Well, actually, Charlie doing his best Robert impression from Noah Baumbach's Marriage Story, which gets us into our poll results. A couple of weeks back, anticipating Annette, we asked you, what is your favorite Adam Driver performance? The options we gave you were Flip Zimmerman from Spike Lee's Black Klansman. He got a supporting actor nomination for that. Or Charlie in A Marriage Story. He got a best actor nomination for that. 
Patterson in Jim Jarmusch's Patterson, Kylo Ren in Star Wars, Francisco Gruppe in Silence, or you could go other. Maybe you thought it was one of those other Jarmish performances or one of those other Noah Baumbach performances. You could write that in. Josh, how did it come out? Well, I don't know if this speaks to Driver's performance or the fact that Silence is maybe an underseen Scorsese film, but Francisco Garupe is in last place, 3%, even lost to the other option, which got 6% of the vote. Kylo Ren received 7%, Flip Zimmerman, 14%. And yeah, we kind of knew, I think the two of us split on these top two, Adam, if I remember correctly, mm-hmm. in the ways we voted. But Patterson, second place, 33% of the vote, pretty close behind Charlie from A Marriage Story, which received 37%. Here's Mauricio R. He says, Marriage Story takes it for the Being Alive sequence alone. The heartbreak and passion Charlie has been feeling throughout the movie finally finds a medium for release, and Driver brings all of these feelings to the forefront of his performance here breathtaking stuff. Here's Jess L. I'm an Adam Driver superfan, having seen every single on-screen performance he's ever made, as well as a play, and without a doubt his best performance is Patterson. That scene with him and the little girl reciting poetry replays in my brain often. He is subtle and specific, never overplaying anything. It's a cozy film led by a cozy performance. Mitch McGonigal says Adam Driver has about five minutes of screen time in Inside Lewin Davis, but he wears a cowboy hat and sings about space with Justin Timberlake. I don't know what else you could ask for. I mean, such a great sequence. I just watched yeah. Inside Lewin Davis again recently, and I was surprised. Here, this this is always a mark of a good performance. You go back to it, and you think they're in like five times as many scenes as they're actually in, uh-huh. right? And and he's so funny there. All right, we also heard from Darren. Despite the amazing set of roles you highlight here, I'm choosing other to recognize Driver's incredible work as Jamie in Noah Baumbach's While We're Young. It's a testament to his nuanced performance that I was able to simultaneously hate Jamie's ethical ambivalence, but also believe he actually inspires Stiller's adoration slash envy. Well said, Darren. Couldn't agree more. Spencer Delamore says, I had to go with Officer Ronald in The Dead Don't Die because of the delivery of the word ghouls. (laughs) That is nicely done in that film. Here's Stephen R. I went with Patterson because I think it really is the right choice, but I also want to give a shout out to his great supporting turn in Jeff Nichols' Midnight Special. That was the first time I thought he was genuinely excellent in a movie. And that movie seems to have been unfortunately forgotten all the way around, really. Good movie and even better performance. I'm with you there, Stephen. Ken Link says, no disrespect to any of the options here. I've seen all of them, which is rare for me in a film spotting poll. But Driver's performance as Kylo Ren in the Undercover Bosses sketch on Saturday Night Live offered a knowing wink to the criticism leveled against his theatrical performance that transcended the underwritten material that he was likely given. That, along with his over-the-top interpretation of Abraham H. Parnassus as the love child of Daniel Plainview and Monty Burns, marks this as an appearance showing greater range and self-awareness than any of the listed options with more screen time than Al Cody and more depth than Flip Zimmerman. Wow. More depth than Flip Zimmerman. And he's going off of two Saturday Night Live skits. And and I like how Ken prefaced all that with no disrespect to any of the options here. (laughs) Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Well, I admire Ken's bold choice and I admire everyone who not only voted in that poll, but did take the time to leave comments. It's time for a new poll. September is only weeks away. There's Telluride, New York, Toronto, Chicago. The big film fests are coming, which usher in the fall movie season. A fall movie season, which this year means that rare alignment of the stars that gives us not one but two films by a director 
with the last name Anderson. Mm. Wes Anderson's The French Dispatch. Finally, Josh, it had its debut at Cannes earlier this summer. It's scheduled to come to theaters on August 22nd. Are you actually believing it? Have you bought in? Are you accepting that we may see it October 22nd? uh, The way things are going, Adam, do not even joke, please. Gosh, you know what? You're right. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. This could happen again. We could be here a year from now doing this all over. Let's just move along. Let's get to the poll. Let's just move along. Paul Thomas Anderson's Soggy Bottom is supposed to, it will, come to theaters a month later on November 26th, but will likely have its premiere at one of those fall fests. So our question is simply, it's a death match. No. You can only see one Anderson movie. Josh is already trying to get out of it. You can only see one. Which one do you go see? And remember the death match rules. You do get to walk in one door. You'll never be able to walk in the other door. The movie, once you make that choice, the other one, it goes in the incinerator. Like the whole theater, the whole house just blows up immediately, right? <laughs> Basically, yeah. Um, I why is Sam doing this? Is he likes is my to torture us? First question. I'm most people are probably like assuming my answer is French of dispatch, course. right? I mean, come it's, on, I, don't a, tease us, Josh. There's no, no suspense here. Well, you know that if I had to choose one filmmaker overall, it would be Wes Anderson. But realize I'm also coming off, or Aunt Paul Thomas Anderson is coming off. <sighs> With Phantom Thread, a movie that I think at some point, Adam, I will probably have to say is his best pushing aside Punch Drunk Love. Every time I revisit that movie, I think about Phantom Thread so often, it's it's really making this more difficult, in addition to all the other movies of his that I love. Now, add to this, I didn't watch the French Dispatch trailer until I think it was before Pig, they had it. And so mm-hmm. I'd, I'd been trying to avoid it. But it was there. And, you know, maybe it's just the, uh, you know, the the short film compilation format. I, I don't know. I was not as excited by the trailer as you would think. What? I should be. I'm not saying it, it looked terrible or anything. It was just not like I didn't leave that like craving, craving the French dispatch. Mm-hmm. So let me think about this some more while you give me your answer. Unless yours is simpler. It's just PTA. I mean, you would choose PTA. So is that... I mean, I think we've somehow kind of switched bodies here, which doesn't mean I'm really going to go with the answer that would surprise you and everyone else. But where there's a little bit of a surprise is that over this past year, as you know, during really the height of COVID back in 2020... I watched with my two oldest before my son Holden went off to college. We watched all of Wes Anderson's films. Actually, he did end up going off to school before we watched the Darjeeling Limited. So we clearly did not go in order. And we have one film left before the trio of myself, Holden, and Sophie are completest. But as you know, Josh, not only did I watch Rushmore and just further love that film and watch The Royal Tenenbaums yet again and concluded it's his best film probably, and love Moonrise Kingdom all over again. But I also came around. I came around finally on the Grand Budapest Hotel. Oh, I thought you were going to say Life Aquatic. (laughs) No, I think it's incredible. You know where I stand on the Life Aquatic. I don't know that I will ever change my position on that one. But having had that reversal on Grand Budapest and then seeing the trailer, I think you're right, before Pig, for the French Dispatch, I I was kind of in... Andersonian bliss the whole Mm. time. And I got Mm. even more excited for the French Dispatch. So excited that this isn't just an easy check of the box for Paul Thomas Anderson for me, though I ultimately still 
do have to go that direction. And maybe it's because even though we can look at Paul Thomas Anderson as an auteur and we can find those common sort of themes and threads and even some techniques across his filmography, it might be that unpredictability. The fact that you really just have no idea what you're going to get with any Paul Thomas Anderson film, whereas you can watch the trailer for any Wes Anderson film, and it all can feel very familiar. Now, that's also what makes watching his films and revisiting them so much fun. But I'm going to go with that unpredictability. I'm going to go with my favorite filmmaker, the Anderson I tend to list as my number one director when people ask over the Anderson that I think you typically say is your favorite director when people ask you. Yeah, I like that reasoning. The unpredictability makes sense. But as you were talking, I, I then realized that Wes Anderson's last film was Isle of Dogs, which at mm -hmm. this point I also consider his second best film. <laughs> so really so good. that's, that's going to that's gonna even things out for me. And really, I just don't want to agree with you. So I'm, I'm going to vote French Dispatch. Fair enough. Now, one of the reasons that you could say Soggy Bottom is unpredictable, perhaps, is that we almost know nothing about what the movie's actually about, nor have we seen any trailers at this point. So there's still a lot of mystery surrounding the latest from PTA, as there usually is with his project. So I do wonder whether or not the voting here will perhaps be skewed simply by the fact that people have seen the French Dispatch trailer. I assumed that people would see it and react like me and go, well, I don't know what Soggy Bottom's going to be. I have no clue. But I know the French Dispatch looks amazing from that trailer. So even though maybe some people are out there like me tend to lean more PTA, they might actually be leaning Wes in this poll just because they've at least seen something of the French Dispatch. Well, polls are open, so we'll soon find out. You can vote at filmspotting.net. Leave a comment, too. Let us know how you wrestled with this one. Now, before we move on, though, Josh, I do have to tell you, mm. I dug into the Film Spotting archive. I found something that maybe even Sam wasn't aware of when he came up with this deathmatch. We have been here before. It did sound familiar. 2014. Yes. 2014 fall movie preview deathmatch. We posed to our listeners and got over a thousand votes. It was the Mr. Anderson edition. Yes. We said you can only see one. And it was Paul Thomas Anderson's Inherent Vice versus Wes Anderson's Grand Budapest Hotel. Okay. Do you have any sense of how that one came out? Yeah, PTA won it. I mean, I, it's coming back to me now. So, but it'll be he interesting. Did. It'll be interesting, you know, how many films and what, you know, eight or so years later, see where things lie. 62% at the time went inherent vice. And again, I can only speculate, can't read minds of all of our listeners out there, but I wonder if there's a good percentage of those 62% who were like me at the time, all in on PTA and anything he does, and it was a clear pick for them. And then in retrospect, it seems like Grand Budapest is maybe aged a little better as the classic film. I don't know that Inherent Vice quite has the stature, even though I adore that movie as well. And maybe now people are going to hear me say that and they're going to go, okay, well, you know what? I'm not going to make that mistake again. French Dispatch it is. We'll see. Filmspotting.net. Hey, 
，因为想由头嚟过，同佢离开咗香港。两个人行下行下，咁我嚟咗阿根廷。Ho always says, "Let's start over," and it gets me every time. We've been together for a while, and we break up often. But whenever he says, "Let's start over," I find myself back with him. In order to start over, we left Hong Kong, we hit the road, and ended up in Argentina. That's Tony Leung as Lai Yufei with the opening lines from Wong Kar Wai's 1997 film *Happy Together*. It's the fifth film in our World of Wong Kar Wai marathon. This marathon is inspired by Wong's recent restoration of seven of his best-known films. They're all included in the Criterion Collection's new *World of Wong Kar Wai* box set. And currently streaming on the Criterion Channel. As it was for the unhappy couple in Happy Together, the trip to Argentina was a kind of starting over for Wong as well. It's his first film set entirely outside his native Hong Kong, and as I'm sure we'll get into, Josh, the setting inspires a very different aesthetic approach than we've seen in the previous films so far in this marathon. Also worth noting. The 1997 was a momentous year for Hong Kong. It was the year Britain handed over control of the city to China, which meant a period of uncertainty for residents of the city. That uncertainty was even more acute for gay men and women. Happy Together had its premiere at the 97 Cannes Film Festival, where Wong was awarded the Best Director Prize. But maybe, following last week's conversation about Fallen Angels, Josh, we should start with the acting. We wondered if part of Wong's auteurous reputation needed to be shared with regular collaborators like actors Tony Leung and Maggie Chung. Leung is back here, as is Days of Being Wild's Leslie Chung. Does Happy Together prove us right in lamenting the absence of Tony Leung in Fallen Angels? I mean, yes. If if you agree with me that this is the best performance we've gotten in this marathon so far, his performance here as Lai, and I I think it is. I think he. He hits, you know. We've been talking about loneliness and and melancholy and the new levels of melancholy <laughs> that he hits here that、uh, are deeper, truer in some ways to me, rang truer as this guy who's forced to choose really between a heartless lover、mm-hmm. and loneliness in this unknown country, and. You know he's been so damaged by this really abusive relationship too.、Uh, we can debate that whether we think it is. I, I certainly do. That when a third option appears later in the film, he meets、uh, this other man when he's working at a restaurant, a dishwasher, Chang, played by Chen Chang, and they start a friendship, kind of delicately dance around the edges of it being something more.、Mm-hmm. But you know, even then, you get the sense that that Lai. He's just not able to pursue that, pursue something better, because he's been so damaged. And and the ways that Leon carries that in his eyes, in his face, in his posture, and then the scenes that Wong stages to evoke that, including the incredibly heartbreaking scene, which I I, I don't. I guess it's not a spoiler, but you know, I, I would love for people who haven't watched the film yet to experience it unspoiled, just basically him alone at a table.、Mm-hmm. Yeah, this guy's just—he's been magical throughout this marathon and is at his best, I think. Here now, that poses another question I can ask you too, and and you know, Debbie actually pointed this out because she's been watching along with me on all these films. Like that, this is easily, I think. Lie is easily the most sympathetic, like straight up sympathetic character we've gotten, and so there's that element. You know, he kind of has、mm-hmm. us on on our side already, but I think the performance backs that up. Yeah, no, I agree completely, and I think Debbie is correct, and yet there's maybe something about 
his constant going back to Ho, continually being part of this abusive relationship that sometimes maybe makes you question some of his choices, yeah. but you're right. You get those, frustrated those, with them. Yeah, those those contradictions are all there in his performance, and you certainly empathize, especially when you do consider the depth of his loneliness. Leung is really fantastic here, and maybe it's the best performance of the marathon, at least until we get to In the Mood for Love here in the next film we're going to discuss. But the aspect of this movie that really moved me is how it continues to build on a common theme throughout this marathon, throughout Wong's films, but certainly has really come to the fore over the past few, including Chunking Express. And that's this notion, I think, of role-playing and how important it is to these couples. And we get in this film by being in Argentina, and it was, as we noted, the reason why these characters went to Argentina in the first place, we finally see nature, which we really haven't had, right? All of these movies set in Hong Kong, and they are very much about that urban milieu. And here, they get out of the city, they get out of the country, they go to the other side of the world, and those falls, the Iguaza Falls, I think it's called, in Argentina, really is, of course, I'm not saying anything shocking here, a metaphor for their entire relationship. Because you see the water, which again, we've seen really nothing like that a shot of nature so far throughout this marathon. We see those falls. Wong cuts back to it multiple times throughout this film. And it is everything that their relationship also seems to be in that. Yes, it's nature. And there's a certain aspect of awe to it and beauty, but it's, it's tumultuous. It's dangerous. And I'm sure this isn't how it happened, but I could almost imagine that Wong visited there or saw it somewhere or read about it in a book or a magazine and came across that metaphor and said, I'm going to make a movie that explores this. I'm going to find a couple that can kind of use this. I can build around this as that metaphor. And of course, they're inspired to visit it. That's what sends them off on this journey together. Of course, not for nothing. They don't make it together. I guess that's a spoiler here, Josh, as well, but I want to talk about that a little bit more later. But it's also because of the the lamp that they have back in their apartment in Hong Kong. So it's a representation of the falls that sets them off on this journey, just like so many of us fall in love and get involved in relationships because we have a certain sense, a representation in our minds of what love should be, what a relationship should look like. And of course when we actually do view the falls, it's nothing at all like what is on that lamp, is it? The lamp is not only really colorful, almost magically real or fantastic compared to the way the falls really look, but it's serene and it's peaceful. It's the complete opposite of their relationship. There are also two people there together. So that's that ideal. That's that image, literally the image in their mind they're always striving for and... They never do get there. This is what's so great about movies and movies this complicated and talking about movies this complicated mm -hmm. is because everything you're saying completely resonates with me as I'm listening to you. And it's like makes perfect sense. As I was watching that movie, I almost had the opposite impression in terms of 
the waterfall being a metaphor because I found that shot and let's just describe the shot a little bit more. It's overhead mm-hmm. looking down. Essentially, it seems like the center of the falls. So they're really spilling almost completely around the frame, the water. And it's almost impressionistic. We're so high above that it's just like these blues and greens and grays and browns. And then there are little black dots going by, which you, I imagine must be birds. And yes, there's the raw power. We can mm. hear them too in the background. But me, that image, which we just cut away to, and I think we only cut away to twice, may, no more than three times. To me, it conveyed peace. It can beauty and it conveyed hmm. stillness, all the things their relationship is not. And so for me, I thought the lamp is really the metaphor in a way, because the lamp, as you described it, is this depiction of these falls, sure. but illustrated, heightened, and false, untrue, not something yeah. that you, as you said, could could ever obtain. And, and so to me, that was kind of like th- this relationship we know very early on is never going to work. And, and so that's that's kind of um, the way I read it. But again, it, yeah. it's just, it's the same. It's kind of like exactly the way you were experiencing it just from a slightly different angle. Yeah, so I totally. love that Wong's movies can be this open to no. to different experiences. No, and I, I get all that. And I think for me, what I'm really focusing on and anchoring my reaction to is that idea that the falls image that we cut to a couple times and then do revisit at the end of the film is reality. Even though it's impressionistic, it's real. It's the falls. Whereas that lamp clearly is a version of that reality. It's the fantasy. And what we've learned, if we've learned anything so far from this marathon, is that in the world of Wong Kar Wai, the fantasy relationship, the one that's built around a story where you've kind of created characters and roles for yourself to play is always preferable to the real one. And I think that's, that is what we get here in the, in the way that they are so terrible for each other in so many tangible ways. And also in the non-relationship you referred to between Lai and Cheng, the fact that that's even just sort of out there hanging over the movie and hanging over the end of the movie in a, Sort of bleak and depressing, but actually hopeful way. Again, those are the amazing contradictions of Wong Kar Wai that it's hanging out there as a possibility, but it's kind of hanging out there as a possibility only because they don't actually pursue it. As long as they don't pursue it and don't discover the reality of the relationship, they can always have the magic of the possibility. So this is really interesting because this is the first film that all his other movies have kind of lived in that space that you're describing, longing for a possible relationship. This is the first one, if I'm remembering correctly, where right from the start, we're dropped into an existing relationship, right? And so I was, I'm thinking about this and this relates to, you know, the, the aesthetic touches, the fact that you mentioned the shot of the waterfall is unlike anything we've seen before, which I agree with. I've been trying to figure this out. If, if, is there some sort of reflection aesthetically about the fact that this is a movie in an actual existing real relationship rather than a pining for one. You know what I mm-hmm. mean? Is yeah. th- th- There's dissatisfaction still, dissatisfaction within the relationship rather than without. And I don't know if aesthetically that is reflected at all. I can't point to any one thing. Even the shot of the waterfalls, yes, kind of works in, but not clearly. And maybe Wong is just saying there there shouldn't be a difference because it's the same pain. The same pain these characters are experiencing in the relationship 
is it feels the same as the longing for one. But I don't know if if anything came to mind for you that we're, we definitely have a plot distinction here. But mm-hmm. does it change much otherwise in how this movie even looks or feels or moves? Not necessarily beyond what we were describing with the shot of the falls. I mean, I do think in all of these films we've seen so far, they're all about loneliness. And you get that juxtaposition of the bustling, busy city with all the people and the activity. For the most part, Days of Being Wild, again, is a departure in that it feels empty by design, I think. But for the most part, all these people and activity, and yet there is that sense of alienation and disconnection. And then here, you do feel the weight, the added weight of that, and how amplified the loneliness is, the alienation is, when now you're truly a stranger in this strange land, and you are untethered from any connections whatsoever you might have, whether it's former lovers or family or colleagues. But that really is the the fascinating part of this movie for me and kind of why I'm trying to get at this larger notion of role playing and the power of it in his films. This is Josh, to your point, the first movie we've seen where it really is about a relationship where the two people are in it almost the entire time. And it just feels so long that it feels doomed from the moment we meet them. And there really is a sense that they'd be better off as long as they were always thinking about each other, but never actually together. And in fact, you know what it reminded me of? Again, I'll go back to this role-playing idea, a movie that came up when we were talking about our poll question this week and Paul Thomas Anderson's work and his most recent film, Phantom Thread. That was a movie I had on my mind a lot watching this film because at one point they've been apart and then Ho gets into some financial trouble and he gets beat up very badly and he has to go to the hospital And he comes back and he has to be basically nursed back to life. I don't know exactly how long it is, but it seems like it's at least several weeks or maybe even several months. And I think that Lai's voiceover, the Tony Leung voiceover, does verbalize this. But you realize that they are probably happiest and maybe only happy when they're both playing that role. One is... I don't know if he's the victim or he's just kind of an invalid in this scenario, but he needs to be taken care of. And Lai can be the one who takes care of him. Yeah. And they seem genuinely happy when they are both playing that role, which gets back to the great line that recurs again and again in this movie where Ho always gets him, he says, when he says, let's start over. He almost always inevitably does start over. Well, that's... That's like what you would do on a movie set or on a stage, right? You would say, let's start over. Let's just restart the scene. Let's basically pretend that everything that happened before is gone. And without all the baggage, we get to start and we get to be new characters. We get to be new for each other. Except, of course, that's always short-lived because all that baggage does come up and they, they become themselves. And they can only be themselves. They can't be those different characters who actually start over. Yeah, I think the reason Lai says that is that was the happiest time is, uh, you know, it also restricts Ho. It forces him into that role Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, because otherwise, if he is healthy and can leave, he does. We get the sense that he'll just disappear for a couple of days and he meets up with other men. Um, We get the sense. And so that's a a crucial part of um, their relationship that makes it really difficult for Lai. But that's also, I'm glad you bring up that sequence or that section of the film because Leslie Cheung has given a really good performance here too. He's not just, quote unquote, the bad guy. Mm-hmm. That 
central section, we see how he can be charming. There's the whole bit about, you know, where he he pretends like he wants to sleep on the bed. And so then Lai moves over to the couch and then he says, well, no, I want to sleep on the couch. You know, that goes just kind of like this, this charming back and forth where we can see the appeal. We can see, you know, where there is playfulness and kindness Mm -hmm. between them. And I think it's crucial both that those scenes are given for that character and that Chung pulls them off. So yeah, I think that's a really good performance here as well. I did want to note, you know, just going back to this idea of what is aesthetically different. One thing that did stand out to me as I was watching this was the music, you know, we've had Mm. some really remarkable pop songs or covers of pop songs, I should say, in some cases that just really punctuate some of these Wong Kar Wai films. And here the music was more in the background, I think, even happy together. Like we don't even get happy together till the end credits. Mm -hmm. We were all expecting it to kind of come blaring out at some point and it doesn't happen. And instead what we get, and I have to credit Adrian Fernandez on my Larson on Film Facebook page. I I posted my review of the film and he commented um, that he really liked, uh, he's Argentinian, he says, and he really liked how it features music from Astor Piazzolla. So Mm -hmm. that of course sent me on a Spotify rabbit hole. And yes, that's, those were all of the, the music that I was thinking of in this film is these snippets of these Piazzolla composed pieces, which are kind of like a, a slow lingering tango music, I guess you could describe Mm -hmm. it. so in line going back to where I started with Leung's performance you know those layers of melancholy this this music just kind of it's not on top of you it doesn't force itself but it's there mm-hmm. in the background just kind of drooping the way he droops but it's beautiful as well it is and that's a distinction I think a, a shift from some of the other films we've yeah. seen no I love those interludes as well it's very evocative music certainly has been a standout throughout this entire marathon we always seem to dwell on one or two shots from Wong Kar Wai and his cinematographer and collaborator Christopher Doyle I wonder what was your favorite here and I have a clear one which is maybe a fairly insignificant scene at least compared to some of the other more dramatic ones we've talked about but just in terms of sheer beauty as a tableau and it is a shot where the camera as i recall it is completely still it's late in the film it's where we've seen lie now exhibiting some of the same behavior he used to hate ho for which is being out and getting involved with other men and he goes to call his father to kind of confess to some sins from the past that helped lead to his departure from Hong Kong. And we see him just walk along a street and go up to the phone booth to make the call. And you've got this phone booth, which has that neon-ish green that we associate with a lot of Wong movies and shots that is so striking and can't help but catch your eye. But then that yellowish amber glow that's almost soothing against it of a bunch of street lamps behind him. And then the whole thing is this deep focus shot that makes it feel so expansive. It's at nighttime and there's a kind of old car next to him and behind him are a bunch of buses 
that look like they've all been beat up and they're all kind of taken out of commission. And I'd even go so far, I'm reading into it so much, Josh, that that makes sense, right? Because they just feel... They feel lonely even. They feel worthless. They feel like, you know, what are buses supposed to do but to carry people? And they're all just there, completely empty, with no purpose, like him. They're abandoned. And the bridges behind him are kind of industrial-looking and ominous. It feels like something a bit out of Antonioni from one of his 60s films. And it's just a single shot. And yet, as soon as I finished the film, I had to go back and watch it again just to try to wrap my head around what caught my eye so much about it yeah that one's gorgeous antonioni is definitely all over this movie especially the black we haven't mentioned there are black and white sequences that's right and that that's exactly you know long stretches of road with a single figure standing along the side for me i mean the first image that's going to come to mind later on when i think back on this film is the one of the waterfalls it's just you know it's it's like something out of um malik's tree of life uh that whole creation sequence it's just that Gorgeous, but I also, and again, it's more of subdued, a subdued one, like your pick, is that one I alluded to of Lai sitting at a table at a restaurant alone, and we just, again, won't spoil the details, that's where we really understand the depths of his despair, but it's not, uh, the camera doesn't move, as you mm-hmm. said, as your shot, it, it's... It's perfectly composed and framed. There are multiple beer bottles in just the right place. It's a yeah. It's a <laughs> like eight or ten. Yeah. I think I counted today. There's it's a, a lot Mexican restaurant. So there's you know the bright colors again, lots of reds and yellows, but the camera just sits there on him in a medium shot, discreetly away from him, as we watch. And I think that's you know it, it's really it's probably maybe the most heartbreaking moment so far that we've seen in a, in a marathon full of those sorts of moments. And so that's probably the second one I will go to when I think about happy together. So I think we're maybe about three weeks away from completely wrapping up this marathon where not only will we talk about in the mood for love, but we'll eventually do our Wong Kar Wai marathon awards. And we will include in that award ceremony, if you will, 2046, we may not give it a full conversation, but we will watch all seven movies or rewatch, in some cases, all of the movies that are part of that World of Wong Kar Wai box set, and we will include them for consideration in our awards. Now, I mention this because if anyone out there has a good awards title, something that has recurred, a certain phrase that you think would sum up this marathon and be perfect for the awards, we would love to hear it. Feedback at filmspotting.net. The other thing I'd love to feature... Josh, if if someone out there has the background on it and feels up to edifying us on it, a topic that we really haven't touched on at all in this marathon, and we referenced it briefly in the intro to this conversation, but we really haven't gotten into at all the politics of Wong Kar Wai's movies. Yeah. And I think that's part of the beauty of them as well, is that you can talk about these films for as long as we have and not mention politics at all. Or you could probably write an entire book just focusing on the politics. If you read the little write-up about this movie that's in the box set, at one point there's a question that they say this movie sort of implicitly posits, which is, can Hong Kong and the mainland truly be happy together? That that's another central theme of this movie, something Wong is wrestling with. And it's lost on me in terms of really understanding it, remembering that transition 
understanding the full ramifications of what it meant for Hong Kong residents at the time. And even even today, really, what has evolved or not since then. So I'm kind of throwing it out there to someone that maybe just has a better sense of it. We always learn from our listeners and we would love to learn from you now. I would anyway. Feedback at filmspotting.net. Happy Together is currently available in its new restoration on the Criterion channel. That's the same for all the titles in the world of Wong Kar Wai Marathon. Next up, it's going to be a good one. In the Mood for Love. More about the marathon is at filmspotting.net slash marathons. Adam, that is our show. If listeners want to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, Adam is at FilmSpotting. I'm at Larson on Film. In the show archives over at FilmSpotting.net, you can find reviews, interviews, and top fives going back to 2005. You can also vote in the Film Spotting poll. You can watch one Anderson film this fall, Wes's French Dispatch, or PTA's Soggy Bottom. Which one? To order show t-shirts or other merch, visit filmspotting.net slash shop, and you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter at filmspotting.net slash newsletter. On that poll, Josh and I protested too much and ultimately went with our safe choices. Josh with Wes, me with PTA. Out in wide release this weekend, Don't Breathe 2, a sequel to the 2016 horror film. Free Guy, a background character in an open world video game, becomes sentient. That Stars Ryan Reynolds, directed by Sean Levy, who did Night at the Museum. And Respect, Jennifer Hudson, stars in the Aretha Franklin biopic, which Josh did give a little respect to. Out in limited release, it's the latest from Chilean director Pablo Lorraine, who made Jackie. I can say Jackie. I'm not sure, Josh. I'll just admit it. Is EMA Emma? Is it Ema? Is it Ama? For now, Someone let's go with us. Emma. Okay, let's go with Emma. It's out. Gail Garcia Bernal and Mariana Di Girolamo star as a couple dealing with the aftermath of an adoption that goes awry. Next week on the show, we're going to be off. Our radio listeners will surely hear some best of film spotting in the place of our normal show. And then in two weeks, we will get to, right now, slated anyway, Josh, Candyman and In the Mood for Love. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Kat Sullivan. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.